0: Wonderworking power in the
1: pressure. Incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station.
0: Look at my back. Can you see it? Right next to my spine, and then it curls up around my shoulder. Yeah, the whole thing is one scar. Of course, that's better than the alternative. When I woke up in recovery, the surgeon told me it might have been the worst skiing accident he'd ever seen. (laughs) I couldn't disagree. Not with my jaw wired shut, anyway. And all this because a jackrabbit decided to startle me on that black diamond. Seventeen broken bones. My arms and legs were in casts for months. I couldn't even sleep laying down thanks to my splintered shoulder blade. Instead, a nurse would prop me up in a transport wheelchair and fasten two belts around my chest to keep me upright so I could sleep. Not too comfortable. I'd wake up with angry red streaks where the belts had bitten at the flesh under my shirt. I I mentioned the transport wheelchair, but I should be specific. There were two kinds of wheelchairs at the hospital. Ones with two big rear wheels, and the ones without. I was in the second type, which meant I couldn't propel myself from place to place. Even if my arms hadn't been mangled, I I needed someone to push. An attendant. That was my only way of getting around for nearly a month. And you know me, I'm not the sort that enjoys being doted on. I like to do things for myself. So it was hard, every day waking up and relying on people to help me out of bed, push me from appointment to appointment. Not to mention more private matters. During the accident, my ski pole had smashed into my jaw, shattering it and ripping apart my tongue. That first week, the doctors had to keep reminding me not to speak. The painkillers were so heavy-duty, I couldn't feel my mouth filling with blood every time I tried to speak. Instead, they told me, if I wanted anything from the nurses, or if I had a question, I had to write it down, in marker, on a little whiteboard that I kept in a little wire basket attached to my chair. All things considered, that might have been the hardest part. I'm a bit of a talker, and writing with two broken arms is even worse than it sounds. But I got used to it. It's amazing what you can accomplish when you have real support. The staff went out of their way to break up the crushing monotony that settled over patients like so much dust. There were book clubs, movie nights, I even derived some vicarious joy watching others eat ice cream Sundays on Friday. Best of all was the therapy dog program. Dogs were never my favorite, but there was a brown lab who came by my room every day for the first two weeks. Never met a sweeter animal. Unfortunately, the program ended abruptly about halfway into my stay. Something about a missing dog. But still, I I never thought a hospital could be so pleasant. It began to feel like a home, and besides the healing, visits from friends, and watching some of the trashiest daytime TV you can imagine, it was a pretty uneventful winter for me except for that one night, of course. No, 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 I I don't don't mind, really. Just give me a moment. I'd gotten used to sleeping upright by then. That's probably why I didn't hear when someone unlocked the door to my room in the middle of the night. My first conscious memory is the chair jostling as its back wheels edged over the metal threshold that separated my room from the hallway. Through the fog in my brain, I assumed I'd overslept and missed a blood test. Or worse, more physio. Whatever it was, we were in a rush. The attendant was wheeling me fast, real fast. At each turn, the momentum crushed my side against the chair's arm, sending a nauseating ache radiating along my ribs. It was only when we entered the elevator and the bright lights washed over my face that I awoke fully. I blinked blearily and gazed at the number pad. After a moment of numb staring, I noted that the one had been depressed. My blood tests were done on the third floor. My physio was on the second. I never went to the first floor, unless it was to see my family. Where was I going, and who was pushing me? The elevator's semi-reflective, brushed aluminum doors offered no hints. Just smeared colors splashed with light, a reflection so distorted I couldn't even recognize myself. I reached for my whiteboard, but just as I did, the doors dinged open. The first floor was dark. The gift shop was shuttered. Far away toward the back, I could just make out the cafeteria's rotating sign advertising hot coffee. It was the only source of light. A lonely figure stood beneath it, probably a doctor refueling for an overnight shift. I had only a few moments to take this in before the attendant took us down one of the many hallways that stretched from reception into the guts of the hospital. We wound our way through the knot of crisscrossing hallways for what seemed like minutes before reaching a locked door. A sign informed me it was for use by employees only. The attendant turned the chair so I couldn't see the keycard reader. Only later did I realize it was because the keycards have the faces of employees on them. The door opened, and the attendant pulled me through it backwards. The chair spun around. A gust of piercing February wind licked at my face. The empty parking lot stretched out in front of me, its silver-white lines illuminated by three guttering streetlights. Beyond that, the shadows of treetops danced silently in the breeze. I looked up and shuddered. A moonless night sky crouched overhead. I was outside. I barely had time to register the cold before the attendant started pushing me across the lot the wheels bouncing over the uneven pavement, sending pinpricks through my fractured legs. I tried to turn in my seat, but my chest was still held firm by the belts. I leaned my head back over the headrest to maybe catch a glance of the attendant, to ask them to slow down a bit, but was greeted by a sharp slash of pain down my spine. I grimaced. My back hadn't healed enough for that kind of movement. I sat quietly for a moment and watched the lines of the parking lot whiz by. So if it wasn't a test or physio, it was probably some kind of patient transport. But then where was the bus? What the hell was going on? I reached over the armrest and fumbled in the basket for my whiteboard, carefully moving it to my lap with both hands. I had the feeling that whatever was happening was urgent, so urgent that if I dropped the whiteboard we wouldn't go back to pick it up. I grasped the fat marker with the two fingers of my left hand that still worked. And slowly wrote out a question. Where are we going? It must have taken longer than I thought because by the time I'd finished we were nearly at the exit of the lot. I held the whiteboard out as far as I could with the message facing behind me. I waited for a response. And then... nothing. There was no way the attendant could have missed the message, but they didn't even break stride. I attempted to turn in my seat again, but a spear of pain jabbed between my vertebrae, forcing me to sit still. We were out of the parking lot now and on the sidewalk, past the invisible threshold that separates the sick from the healthy. There was still no sign of a transport bus, an ambulance, or a driver. There were no people at all. Panic scorched my brain. I was alone with this stranger, completely alone. My breath came in short, wispy gasps as my lungs fought to suck air through the wire. No one was coming for me because no one could know where I'd gone. I would have to make my way out of this, whatever this was, alone. Closing my eyes, I slowed my breathing and fought down my adrenaline. I noticed then that we'd stopped moving. I opened my eyes. The sidewalk outside the hospital was on a steep incline, so steep that my sister complained that she had to gear up just to make it to the parking lot. The hill cut straight through downtown all the way toward the water. From the top of the hill, you could see most of the town. If I'd been healthy, I wouldn't have looked twice, but in my broken state, the height was dizzying. Suddenly, all my questions about who the attendant was, what was happening, all of it vanished from my mind, and I became deeply aware of the hands. Just the hands, holding the wheelchair handles. Through the metal frame, I I could feel them grasping the molded plastic grips. Strong hands, I felt. I hoped. It seemed the attendant had been waiting for me to stop struggling, so I could fully take in the scene. Relief washed over me. Perhaps they were reconsidering. Maybe they would take me back to my room. The decision could still be unmade. But then, slowly... I felt the wheels inch forward, then another pause before they inched forward again. A terrified groan escaped between my teeth as the attendant let the handle slip slowly through their fingers, intentionally. Frantically I erased the whiteboard, smearing black ink all over my cast, and wrote a single word. Don't. Shaking, I I held it up for the attendant to see, but millimeter by millimeter the wheelchair kept slipping forward. Miles below, I could see the downtown traffic lights flick from green to yellow to red. Numbly, I imagined how fast I'd be going by the time I reached them. I held up the whiteboard again, waving it back and forth. Please, I slurred, and my voice cracked. It was the first word I'd said in weeks, unintelligible behind the wire. I tasted blood. For a moment, the wheels continued to slip, but then the hands jolted back, yanking the wheelchair toward the attendant like a yo-yo. Again, the fingers were wrapped strongly around the handles. We began our descent as if nothing had happened. I could have cried. Instead, the questions came rushing back. As we passed darkened house after darkened house, I wrote them on the whiteboard. Who are you? Why are you doing this? Do you want a ransom? All were met with palpable silence, like stones thrown into a bottomless pit. The busy downtown neared, and my hopes lifted at the thought of a quick rescue. But instead, we turned onto an unlit side street. The sounds of traffic, of life, died away as we walked into the darkness. Fear settled over me. The street we'd entered wasn't just dark, it was pitch black, untouched by streetlights. The stars were cloaked by clouds, and it was too late for any home to have their lights on. I squinted, trying to make out where we were going, but the world ahead was a void and then I felt the wheelchair pick up speed. The attendant began to jog, and then run, and then sprint through the black night. The slap-slap-slap of their feet on the pavement mirrored the rapid thud of my heart, so loud I thought someone would hear it. We careened down the pitch-black street, the attendant weaving us back and forth seemingly at random. The wheels shook and fishtailed as they tried and failed to keep up with our pace. Suddenly, a jolt of pain stabbed through my arm as my hand clipped an unseen parked car. I pulled both arms into my lap. Despite the blood pulsing from my knuckles, I found myself praying the collision had been intentional, that my attendant actually could see what was ahead. I was airborne before I finished the thought. A pothole had swallowed the front left wheel, flinging me through the night air. A half second later, the chair and I crashed back to earth sideways and skidded along the street. From the corner of my eye, I watched sparks sputter inches from my face where the metal met the pavement. After what felt like minutes, the chair halted. Pain blossomed from every limb, but somehow it felt as if nothing was broken. I tried to pull myself free to use the darkness to escape, but the straps held tight. There were footsteps, and then the attendant righted the chair. They were crouched right in front of me, mere feet away. Their hands danced across my chest and neck, tugging at the straps. They were panting, almost wheezing, so aggressively that it felt like an act of violence. I leaned forward as far as I could and strained my eyes, but the night was absolute. The attendant put my legs back in the footrests, and seconds later I felt those hands grip the handles once again. I had learned nothing. Or had I? A comforting thought dangled, and I snatched at it. The attendant may have caused the crash, but hadn't they also picked me up and made sure I was safe? They hadn't actually hurt me yet except by accident. Maybe this was just a joyride by someone too foolish to know how dangerous their actions were. We reached the end of the street and turned once again toward the water. This avenue was just as empty of people as the last, but at least it had light. I grabbed the whiteboard. It had a long crack through the middle. I thought for a moment, taking the time to craft my statement, weighing my words carefully before eventually scribbling, Thank you for helping me. I raised it above my head. The attendant made no response, but did I sense a softening in their stride? The street may have had light, but that's about all you could say for it. This was a bad part of town. It seemed like every third house was abandoned or dilapidated to the point of being uninhabitable. Ahead, I could see one of the homes had been burned to the ground. Our pace quickened. The hands on the wheelchair started to shake. Was it fear? Fear of something they'd done, maybe? Perhaps they felt remorse. Or it could be fear of something that had happened to them. We turned onto the overgrown walkway of the torched house. The attendant piloted me past the charred remains of floorboards and bubbled linoleum. Overhead the sky was crisscrossed by the blackened skeleton of the second floor. On the far end of the house, a staircase hung in the air, leading no place. The wheelchair swerved toward the kitchen, the only room with recognizable appliances, and stopped in front of the ash-covered stove. It was an old electric model with those curly elements. The glass door was entirely blackened with soot. A sharp pain rippled down my back as the attendant kicked the seat of the wheelchair. I winced and began writing a question on the whiteboard. The attendant kicked again, harder this time. I held up the whiteboard. What do you want? Another kick. I gasped. This one was hard enough to knock the chair forward. My arm rested on the oven door. The kicking stopped. I looked at the stove and my arm and its ink-smudged cast. I placed my hand on the stovetop. The attendant kicked again, lighter this time. I placed it back on the oven door. No kick. The attendant wanted me to open the oven. I stared at the door and I don't know why, but suddenly all sense of reason, all my theories about who the attendant was and what they wanted fled my mind. Pure animal terror thrilled down my spine. I was more scared of what was in that oven than whatever that son of a bitch was going to do to me. I took my hand off the stove. Fuck you, I thought. The attendant kicked me again, and again, and again. Over and over, tears squeezed from my eyes as I gasped and wheezed through the pain. Finally, I couldn't take it anymore. I put my hand back on the oven door. The kicking stopped immediately, but my back was in agony. I braced myself and pulled open the door. I was greeted by the gamey stench of meat. An animal lay across the oven grate, burned to death. Its flesh showed in patches where the fur had turned to ash and fallen away. The skin was so taut and leathery I wondered if it had any moisture left at all. Fear forgotten, I looked closer. It was a dog, burned almost entirely beyond recognition. It must have been caught in the inferno. A sound from behind me made me flinch. It took a moment for me to recognize what it was. It was crying. The attendant was crying. The sobbing continued, it was so plaintive and pathetic that I found myself automatically reaching for my whiteboard to write something comforting. As I did, I happened to look down at the open door. I saw the scratches on the inside. I saw the grill marks crisscrossing the dog's side. I saw that, of everything in the house, the one thing that still worked was the oven's digital display which was flashing, MEAL DONE, MEAL DONE, MEAL DONE and I realized the attendant wasn't crying. They were laughing. A sick, impossible laugh with no pattern in its rhythm or pitch or melody. It echoed in the destroyed kitchen, reverberating off walls that were no longer there. I had fooled myself into empathizing. Betrayed, scooped out, and discarded, I was so dulled to the world that it took some time before I noticed a dog harness carelessly tossed next to the oven. The tag stitched into the fabric read, therapy dog. Bile rose in my throat. I choked it back. Vomiting was impossible with my jaw wired shut. I closed my eyes and the nightmare around me disappeared. Suddenly, I felt so very exhausted. Eventually, the laughter stopped, and the chair was pulled and turned away from the stove. My eyes creaked open. Almost automatically, I reached for my whiteboard again and wrote out the question that had been gnawing at my brain since we left the hospital. Why did you take me?" A pointless gesture. After all, what answer could possibly satisfy me? It was almost a relief when the attendant, instead of answering, knocked the whiteboard out of my hands, cracking it into pieces on the scorched floor where it lay, indistinguishable from the shattered glass and ceramics of the former residence. The attendant pulled the dead dog from the oven and placed it on my lap. Its cloudy eyes stared up, past me, at the night sky. The attendant clasped the handles and walked the three of us toward the end of the street. The night wind blew up from the water, shaking the bare branches that stood saluting as we walked past. I was cold, cold everywhere except where my casts protected me and where the dead dog lay across my thighs. We entered a park, gray piles of ice lined a recently plowed walkway. Not a soul stirred for what felt like miles around. The attendant had had their fun And now the story was coming to a close. I wondered where they would find my body, what my sister would do. At that thought, something snapped inside me. Do it, I muttered, straining against my stitches. The attendants stopped pushing me. They seemed to be listening. I took a deep breath. Do it, I said again, accentuating the two syllables, forcing them through the wire. I felt the hands leave the handles. For a few moments there was a deathly silence. And then a needle jabbed into my neck and I felt my vision begin to blur. Footsteps, muffled by the tranquilizer, came around to the front of the chair and I had the hazy impression of a person crouched in front of me, staring into my eyes but for the life of me, I can't remember what they looked like. I woke up in my hospital room. My clothes had been changed, I'd been washed carefully from top to bottom. If it hadn't been for the cocoon of soreness encasing my body, I could have passed the kidnapping off as a fevered dream. There were many times I almost told the doctors and nurses what had happened to me. But every time, something stopped me short. In a doctor's step, I would hear the step of the attendant. In a nurse's grip, I would feel the strong hands of my torturer wrapped around the molded plastic handles of the wheelchair. In a laugh. That same crying note. The attendant had used a key to open my room. They'd known about my injuries. It was better to keep silent than to accidentally confess to the attendant themselves. So, until I was able to walk freely, I demanded at least one family member join me at my appointments. I stayed awake all night, and on the rare occasions I did sleep, I would wedge myself in the chair against the door and lock the wheels. I never told anyone about that night. The risk was too great. On my last day in the hospital, I woke up in a bed. I'd been sleeping lying down for nearly two weeks, and while it was painful at first, it had been getting easier every night. I grabbed for my crutches leaning against the wall, but stopped short. Something on the bedside table caught my eye. It was small and perfectly white. One end was pointed, but the points had been smoothed, just like the rest of the object. So smooth that it was almost slick. I turned it over in my hands, examining its nooks and crannies from every angle. Almost ceramic. I took it with me. A few weeks later, I was out with a friend. When I reached for my wallet to pay, the white object fell out of my pocket and clattered onto the table. He looked at it, and then turned to me with a funny expression. He said, Why are you carrying around a dog's tooth? I didn't know then, and six years later, I still don't know why I carry the tooth, or why I find myself playing with it on dark nights, or why I'm terrified it'll shatter every time my nerve-damaged hands drop it onto the floor. I know as much about these things as I do about the attendant's motives. I'm sure somewhere there's an answer. But I doubt it would be comforting.
1: The Wrong Station is made possible by the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Consider visiting today at patreon.com slash station. This week's episode, The Attendant, was written by Jacob Duarte Spiel and performed by Hugh Ritchie. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citron and arranged for the viola and performed by Ilana Schmid. You can subscribe to The Wrong Station on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and any other of your favorite podcast services. You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. You can also follow The Wrong Station creative team on Twitter at AEW Saxton, AJV Botello, and JacobBRDS.